Well, good morning and amen, and thank you to the worship team for leading us in beautiful, Christ-exalting worship. Amen? amen? And it's been good to gather and to sing together and uh, to make much of the resurrection and the person of Jesus Christ. Today is Easter. It's the day that Christians around the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is, again, what we have been singing about And the reason that the story of the resurrection is so appealing to us and is something that we talk about is, is because resurrection means, as we've been saying and hearing even through the scripture, that death has been overcome. And maybe that's not something that we can really relate to, resurrection. But we can all relate very well to death. Death is something that, that we, we've, all, we've all faced in some manner or a, another. It's something that we all have to face. And many of us have faced it, especially with, with loved ones and people that we, we care about. And it's hard and it's difficult to face. And it's only really in the face of death that we can understand resurrection. And death is something that the human race is always trying to beat. In fact, I did some looking and I found some very interesting information on this that I wanted to share with you this morning. For example, did you know that scientists, I'm sure you didn't know this, at the MDI Biological Laboratory in collaboration with scientists from the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, which again, maybe you didn't know about, in cooperation with Nanjing University in China, have identified synergistic cellular pathways for longevity that amplify lifespan fivefold. Did you know that? And the increase in lifespan would be the equivalent of a human living for 400 or 500 years, according to one of the scientists. I noticed that in that article, that it was one of the scientists. How is this possible? Well, they talked about a nematode worm was used as a model in the aging research, and they're hoping to draw some learnings from this worm. Then I read about the Greenland shark, and this shark can live for more than 400 years. And so scientists are studying, how is it possible that this shark can live so long? Well, for one, they they figured out it it lives 6,500 feet underwater in temperatures of 29 degrees. And they realize that's not something we can do. But the idea is to add shark genes to the human genome. And the conclusion of the article is no one knows if it will work. And then there's cryonic preservation. Think Han Solo, Captain America. Discover Magazine had an article describing the work that's being done there. The the body is frozen in hopes that medical technology will advance enough to the point of being able to unfreeze the person in the future and then give life a second chance. John Bost, who's a cryobiologist, was talking about the problem of freezing living cells. And he said, there are genetic changes that occur that say to the cell, die. 
And for those of us who work in this area of freezing biological materials, we've tried organs and so forth and many other things that I didn't mention here, but that were talked about. And there's just insurmountable problems. But interesting how this article pointed out that there's something through this process that's telling the cell to die and they can't stop it. Even when the chances of success are so remote, there is so much time, money, and research being spent in our world today, right now, on extending life, beating death. And the reality is, is that as hard as life can be for all of us, and we would acknowledge that as even as we sing and make much of Christ as a church on this Easter, make no mistake that, that we as a church still understand that there is difficulty and heartache in the world. It's just we're making much of where our hope lies. But death is something most people fear and they want to avoid or at least delay. And so here we have on this day, this Easter day, the celebration of a man who died and then rose again. No nematode worm, no sharks, no cryonic preservation, just divine power. And some would say that's too hard to believe while we're doing research and spending millions in areas where we're saying that's one's not so hard to believe. So what I would ask of you this morning is do not dismiss the one person in all of history who freed himself from the hold of death. Let's pray together and just ask God to lead us. Lord God, it's been so good already to be here together on this Lord's day. And it is the Lord's day because it's the day that Christ rose from the dead. And the, and the church then began to gather on this day to, to celebrate your resurrection, to encourage one another in fellowship, to hear from the word of God. And we continue to do that today. And it's such a blessing for us to be together. Lord God... We pray that through the preaching and the teaching of your word that that you would do work in the hearts and in the minds of every person here. Lord, I pray that each person that is here would just have an understanding and a recognition that God knows them. He knows their heart. He knows their mind. He knows their soul. He knows their pain. He knows their need. And I pray that they would hear from you, God. That's what we pray for and we ask. And we know, according to the scriptures, it's what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. You heard the passage read. It's a very small passage. It's the text that we're going to be looking at. And that text was a part of Peter's sermon in Jerusalem during the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. And that Pentecost celebration took place about 50 days after Passover. And as the story goes, and as we know it, Jesus was crucified during Passover. And at this time, Jerusalem would be filled with tens of thousands of of people. And and some estimates would say it would be in the hundreds of thousands. And in the midst of, of these crowds, the Holy Spirit came to the apostles of Jesus Christ. And they came in such a... The Holy Spirit came in such a powerful way and visible way that the people noticed. 
and, and they ask, what is going on? What, what, what does this mean? What is happening? And, and Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is really the answer to that question. He's explaining what you're seeing here. Now, I want you to keep something in mind as we go forward today, and, and that is Peter's audience in Acts chapter 2. It's largely a Jewish audience. He's in Jerusalem. There, and, and I want you to also know that these are very religious people for the most part. Very religious. They are very, and they're also quite moral. They're, they consider themselves to be law-keeping people. And they have an excellent understanding of the Old Testament scripture. So in our, in our view today, we would say, wow, that's, that's pretty religious people. What, are they, what else do they need? Yet, what Peter makes clear in his sermon is they need Jesus to save them. We're only going to look, uh, again, at a small portion, verses 22 through 24. We'll touch on a couple others, but that'll be the main part. And in these verses, we can see, I want to start by revealing to you four clear acts of God. Four clear acts of God. And I want to point them out to you. And the first one is this. God sent and he attested to this Jesus of Nazareth. This is Peter again talking. And he says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So previous to this verse... Peter had been explaining to the people Old Testament prophecy. And he'd been telling them about this, what the the prophets were saying. And now he moves to the main character of his sermon. The main character of his sermon are not the prophets. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's who the prophets were talking about. Now remember something else. In Acts chapter 2, at this time, as Peter is preaching this sermon... Remember that Jesus of Nazareth was executed in Jerusalem. He's not a hero in this town, in this city. He's actually considered a criminal. He's he's considered a criminal by the Romans in leadership and and the Jewish leadership. And even they would say a heretic because he committed blasphemy, they said. So that's what Peter's talking about. It's not an easy crowd. And Peter says, this Jesus of Nazareth that all of you have heard about, this, the big news that you heard about that took place over Passover, Peter says, this man, he was attested by God. And that means, uh, the, the Greek that's, that's, that we get our English word attest there, it really means to put on display for the world to see, for all to see. And so what Peter's saying is this Jesus of Nazareth, he was put on display for all of you to see. By who? By God. By God himself. God did this. This is what he's pointing out. He wants people to know what God did. Second, he said God did divine works through this Jesus, proving his deity. You see that in verse 22, mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him. Jesus performed miracles. We know that. We read through the gospels. We could see that. No one can even argue with Peter about this because it was, it was, it was reality. It was true. People knew that, yes, this Jesus, he did some, he did some amazing things. He, he, had, he performed miracles that we really can't explain. But what I want you to take note of is why Peter's mentioning it here. He's not just trying to say he did these things. 
He's trying to tell the people that in doing these things, he was revealing to all of them that he was sent by God. And so if all you were was impressed by the miracle, if all you were was impressed by what it is that he did, but you missed the fact that he was sent by God, then you've missed all of it. And that's what he's pointing out, proving his deity. Third, God definitively planned and ordained for this Jesus to be arrested, crucified, and killed. Yet, Peter tells us here that it was lawless men that killed him. This is an interesting one for us to wrap our minds around. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, which means God knew about it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So follow me on this. So I want want you to be able to understand what's happening here. Peter is saying that Christ's death was planned by God before time began. Because God doesn't learn things. He doesn't figure things out as, as time goes on. He knows all things. He's an eternal God. Yet, he says, Peter, that the people involved are responsible. This is what we would call theologically divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both present, both happening at the very same time. This was all part of God's redemptive plan. This is how God would redeem humanity from sin. Yet, Peter's saying, lawless evil men killed him. So there are two plans converging. The divine redemptive plan of God and the evil plan of humans to kill Jesus converge. There's nothing coincidental about this story. There is nothing lucky about it. There's nothing unlucky. There's nothing fortunate. There's nothing unfortunate. It's all been planned by God in advance for his purposes. Yet we see that there were evil people involved doing evil things against a holy God. And then we see the fourth of what God did, the fourth act of God, is that God raised this Jesus from the dead. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So then Peter says, but God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him. And and I have to tell you that that's a very consistent theme in the New Testament written by the apostles. If you read the letters of the New Testament, you will see this theme often. You killed him, God raised him. And that's what he's saying. But he uses a very interesting metaphor here. Loosing the pangs of death. What does that mean? Well, it's a metaphor about childbirth. And the childbirth is referencing resurrection. So the pains that Peter is speaking of here are birth pains, labor pains, prior to birth. And I won't even try to say what that's like. (laughs) Other than my part, and as husbands know, you stand by the bed, you hold the hand, you do a lot of praying, you say, you're doing great, honey. You're doing great. But just as labor pains precede birth, and then after birth in the same way, they end after birth, right? They precede uh, birth, and then, a- and, and then after the birth, they end in the same way. God, what he was doing here is he released and he brought an end to the agony of Christ's death, and he ushered in resurrection. 
So the pain, think of it this way, the pain of labor leads to the joy of childbirth and the pain of Christ's death leads to the joy of his resurrection. And and what Peter again is pointing out is, listen people, this audience that he's talking to in Jerusalem, probably thousands of people are hearing him. God did did all of this. That's Peter's point. God did all of this. None of this was an accident. God did all of it. And then he makes this incredible statement, which is where I really want to focus the the most of my, my time. And that's verse 24, because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it. The it there is a reference to death. What I started with in, in my introduction So I want you to notice what Peter is saying here. He's saying it was not possible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And I want to say it a couple different ways. He's saying death could not hold Jesus. He's saying it was impossible for death to keep its hold on this Jesus. So I just wrote it three different ways to kind of help us understand what's what's going on. But however you want to say it, bottom line is that something happened here. That has never happened before. Death could not hold someone. Death was overcome. No science fiction. Jesus doesn't take his cues from worms or sharks. He is their creator. Now, I want to ask this question. Why is this so incredible? Why is this so unbelievable even? Why why is it hard for us to understand the reality of this? Why is that? Here's why. It's because death holds us every time. And you don't need me to tell you that. I, I don't need to convince you of that. You know it because you live on this earth in this life and you've seen it. And that's intentional, by the way. It's it's a part of how God reminds all of us of our mortality and our need for something more. Our loved ones, our friends, they've been held every time they've been held. By death since the very beginning of time. It's happened this way. Why was this Jesus of Nazareth different? Why did death lose its grip on him while never losing its grip on anyone else? Why? That's the question. That's, that, that's, what, that's what, what, what boggles our mind. It, it, it's what makes us think, what, what is going on here? So I want to give you some reasons that death could not hold Jesus. And these are not my reasons. These are, these are reasons revealed in scripture, in the text. And you'll see that in the word of God. The first reason I want to give you, and I think it's one of the most important ones for us to understand, is that this Jesus of Nazareth was the sinless son of God. That's why Peter said he, had, he was attested by God. God showed you who he was if you were paying attention. But if you weren't paying attention, if you were focused on yourself, if you were focused on too many other things, you missed what God was showing you. 
But why is it significant that Jesus was sinless regarding resurrection? What, what does the sinless part have to do with the resurrection part? I want to explain that to you. And to do that, I need to go to the beginning of the entire story, which is Genesis 2. Genesis 2 says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Notice the tree. It's not just the fruit that's the issue. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating of that is going to give you this this knowledge and, and this understanding that you're not yet prepared to even understand or know how to deal with. And then the scripture says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There it is. There's the beginning of death. This is where death entered the human race. And if you go back since this time, humanity has never defeated death. This is why in 2023, we're still trying to figure it out. This is why we're spending money and researching and doing all the things that we're doing because we haven't figured it out. In one of the articles I was reading, it said that we have barely moved the needle at all. Even though life, uh, life expectancy has gone up, it, it, more, it more has to do with infant mortality than it does with anything else. And that's just stuff that we've figured out, but we're not really moving the needle too much on this. But this is where it all started. And you could say, but pastor, we weren't there. Why does this affect us? And that's a good question. And scripture gives us the answer. It tells us something else about what happened that day in Eden. In Romans chapter 5, this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's the reference back to the garden and Adam, and death through sin. Did you hear that? So you have the sin, but now death through sin has come. So death spread to all men, all humanity, because all have sinned. And so now we have the explanation of where it started and how it has spread to all of us. Death spread to all of us. And why did that happen? Because all humanity has sinned. All of us, every single one of us, everyone here today, And so because we all sinned, death holds us. And because Jesus was sinless, death has no hold on him. Do you see that? He's sinless. It It doesn't have a hold on him. The hold of sin results in the hold of death. That's the first reason. The second reason is that this Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was prophesied to not see the physical corruption of death. In verses 25 through 28 of Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes from a psalm. He quotes from Psalm 16 for a reason. What's his point? Well, he quotes from a psalm written by the great king David. And when you bring up David in Jerusalem, you're bringing up somebody that they like to talk about. And hear about. And it's a messianic text, meaning it's prophesying about a coming Messiah. And notice what it says in verse 27 For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. This audience would know this psalm, they knew their Old Testament text. 
But Peter points something out to them, and he says, you know, David can't be referring to himself there. Why? Well, because David died. Death got him too. His grave is known and marked. His bones are there. David saw corruption. And this text says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So what Peter is saying is, did you people know, people here, this audience here in Jerusalem, did you know that David here is writing of of someone else? And you can almost hear the people thinking, are you saying he's talking about this Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. Peter connects the Old Testament prophecy to this Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, it's him. He didn't see corruption. He is Israel's promised Messiah. And you could almost hear the people going, but how could that be? Do do you mean that we killed Israel's promised Messiah? Yes. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Yeah, that's what you did. But God had a plan. He didn't stay dead. Death could not hold him because he was prophesied from the very beginning to not see the corruption of death. That's the second reason. The third is that Jesus was not victimized by death. He submitted himself to death as our willing sacrifice. Very different than us. In John chapter 10, when Jesus was still Alive, this would be pre-crucifixion, right? Pre-crucifixion, before he rose again, before he ascended. Well, this is when he's still walking the planet. In John chapter 10, he said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He's prophesying and talking about his death. And he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I'm doing it of, of my own will. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again and I've received this from my father. So when Jesus was alive, he told them he would lay down his life willingly and then he would take it up again. That tells us that no one takes Jesus' life from him. As if he's trying to live, desperately live, and death wins. It's not the story. That's a different story. That may be how you understand it, but that's not the story in the scripture. The story in the scripture isn't that Jesus was trying to avoid it and death got him. Even in the death of Jesus, Jesus submitted himself to death willingly, but he did so to atone for sin for those who would believe in him in faith. So he was not victimized by death. Even in his death, he was running the show. It was his plan in motion. Death never had a hold of Christ. Christ submitted himself to death and he did so again with atoning purposes. This is very different from all of us. Because we live life running, avoiding at all costs, death, seeking to escape it, making sure we somehow have life extended. But the story of Jesus is he was born in Bethlehem and he was on a mission 
eyes fixed on the cross. He lived heading right for death. And think about this. What were were the obstacles in front of him? The obstacles in front of him were obstacles of, of trying to make sure he didn't die. It's so different for us because we're always doing just the opposite of, of, of moving on to, to, to live and to extend life. And, and Jesus is just fixed on the cross. It was his divine destiny. He knew death could not hold him. Fourth reason is this Jesus has authority and power over sin, over death, over hell, and the devil. And the, te- uh, the scriptures make this very clear to all of us. I don't know if that's something all of you know. I want to make sure you do know, and again, that it's coming out of the scripture. Second Timothy 1 says that this Jesus, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ, before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death, abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This Jesus has power over death. He abolished death, and he brought life and immortality. But, but the scriptures tell us more than that. He has power over the devil. Hebrews 2 tells us that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. He is the one, this Jesus is the one who has authority over death and hell. And then we have another reminder of that in Revelation 1. And in Revelation, this is the Apostle John writing of a vision that he was given by God. And the vision that he was given by God is of now the risen Christ. So we need to understand the order of things in the Bible. When you're reading the Gospels, you're reading about the Jesus who walked the earth, what we would say is the pre-crucified Christ. Now we're in Revelation. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the crucified Christ who has risen and has already ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And John gets this vision And he writes about it in Revelation. That's what that book is. And he says, when I saw him, in verse 17, I fell at his feet though dead. When he saw the risen Christ in all of his glory, he fell at his feet though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Listen to the words. I am the first and the last. And the living one. I'm the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I, Jesus says to John, I have the keys of death and hell. I have them, which, which keys would represent authority. The first and the last, the living one, the resurrected one. Behold, I'm alive, but I'm not alive just to die again. 
I'm alive forevermore. Never again to die. Death could not hold the one with power over death and hell. And then the fifth reason I want to give you is that this Jesus is the glorious and exalted one. He's our risen savior. This is again back in Acts chapter two as Peter's giving that sermon in verse 33. He talks about this Jesus and he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now he's talking about the place of Jesus at the time he's giving the sermon because by this time, Jesus had already ascended. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's a reference to the fact that the people are seeing the power of the Holy Spirit among them. But what Peter is pointing out here in verse 33 is that this Jesus is the exalted one at the right hand of God. And then in verse 36, he says this. And again, remember the audience he's talking to. This is, not, this is a very courageous message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain There's that word, certainty, that is not as popular in our society and culture today. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus that I've been talking to you about, whom you crucified, what Peter is saying, God has made him Lord and Christ. He's telling the crowd that this Jesus is now very much alive at the right hand of God. He's the one who's poured out his spirit and he's the exalted one, the glorious one. And be certain of this, God is the one who made him, Lord and Christ. God has done this. And you know what that means for us? It means that whether we believe it or not, it's true. God has done it. It's done. It's already done. I want want you to just think about that. Take that in. It's already done. He is Lord and Christ. It's already done. Question is, do we believe it? Death could not hold the exalted one. Couldn't hold the exalted one. So what we see is that he allowed death to hold him for three days, but only for three days, only to fulfill the scriptures, but no more because death could not hold him. And that's what we celebrate, not just today. We, as Christians, we live in this resurrection daily. This is just the day that we remember and we think back in history that it actually happened. But what about all of us? This Jesus has also promised us something. He's promised us something. What is that promise? The promise is that death and the grave won't hold believers either. In John chapter 11, again, now we're in the gospels. So this is pre before he was crucified and died and rose again. He's walking the planet and his friend Lazarus died. And so in John chapter 11, he's, he goes to this town of Bethany uh, and he's, he's too late. He didn't get there in time. And, and so Lazarus has died and he's talking to Martha, a friend of his. And he says in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says to her, do you believe this? What, what is so amazing about this promise is that Jesus promised those who believe in him in faith that though they die, take that in, though they die. So, so a believer isn't living, just doing everything possible to avoid that. They know that it's coming. They can approach it with peace and hope because though they die, yet shall they live. That's the promise. And then never die in verse 26. And they shall never die. That's a reference to living forever with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. And not being a part of what the scripture would call in Revelation the second death. You'd escape that as a believer because of your faith in Jesus. But what's so interesting about the way that God has put this whole redemptive plan together is you have to believe in the risen Jesus in faith now while living here on this death-filled earth. That's, that's, that's the unique part of this. You don't, you don't get to wait. You, you have to do it now. Now is when we must believe in faith in the one who conquered death. And that's why Peter was preaching, and that's why the church is continuing to preach this truth, and especially on Easter Sunday. So as I mentioned, Peter had, he had great courage to preach this message in Jerusalem about a convicted man who was executed, but he did it. He did it because he believed. Why did Peter believe? Because he saw him. He saw the risen Christ. We know the story of Peter. He had some failures where he didn't believe himself, where he was ashamed, but he saw the risen Jesus, and he became a very courageous apostle. But even that day, you know, some mocked Peter's message and didn't believe. Some thought about it. Some considered it, but they postponed any rash decisions. Maybe they believed before death came for them, but maybe not. We don't know. And the scripture says that some did believe. In fact, scripture tells us about 3,000 were added to the church that day. So some did. But what about you? What will, will you respond to, to Jesus, to this Jesus that you've been hearing about in belief? Because the reality is that death is coming for all of us. It's inevitable. Try as we might to escape it, we can't. And should we trust more in science than this Jesus? Is our hope in worms, sharks, and cryonics? Or should we put our trust in the one who died willingly, laid in the grave, and then powerfully rose again and conquered death? The one who defeated death, the one with the keys to death and hell, he is the one who's offering you life. The one who's already done it. And my encouragement to you is to believe in him in faith, to respond in faith. To this one. Again, death awaits us all. May we all trust in the only one death could not hold because it was not possible. It was impossible 
for him to be held by death. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. And that's who we continue to worship. And my encouragement to all of you is to trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord God, it is a beautiful, wonderful day for us to celebrate your resurrection. And Lord, we are surrounded all the time by death. It reminds us of our mortality. But Lord, I pray that it would also remind us of the one who gives us life, the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, for you being the one who could not be held by death and that you have promised those who would trust in you. If they believe in you in faith, that since you are the resurrection and the life, that though they die, yet they shall live. That's our hope, Lord. Help us to trust in you, to live that way each and every day. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.